2: To ask someone who is pregnant and does not want to be pregnant to carry forward a pregnancy for an indeterminate amount of time because their bodily autonomy is deemed by the state not to be essential, that is cruel beyond measure.
3: For the last few months, the world's attention has been focused on the coronavirus. But just because there's a global pandemic doesn't mean we've stopped needing other kinds of medical care.
1: To stop COVID 19 from overwhelming our health care system, many states have ordered that any, quote, non essential procedures be canceled or postponed.
3: But some states are using these orders to shut down services that many people feel are medically necessary, including abortion.
1: This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, bioethicist, and health policy expert.
3: I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian.
1: In this episode, what exactly counts as essential healthcare, and who gets to decide?
3: Zeke, under normal circumstances, how do you define essential healthcare? You know, uh, as somebody who has health insurance, when I get the explanation of benefits back, and I see what they're paying for and what they're not, I think, oh, I guess what they're paying for must be essential and everything else isn't. But I know that's not the way you think of essential healthcare.
1: Well, I think a lot of us think about essential as, first of all, is it necessary to save someone's life or not? Another idea is, is it proven to decrease morbidity? But there's also a lot of things that are in the middle, in a gray area. And the best evidence of this came from Jack Wenberg, a renowned Harvard researcher who moved then to Dartmouth, he did a bunch of really pioneering studies in the early 1970s. He went from small New England town to small New England town, looking at the procedure of putting tubes in children's ears because of chronic ear infections. And what he noticed is that in some towns, they were doing a lot of this procedure on children, and in other towns, they were hardly doing any of it. Now you would think if this was essential healthcare, they should be doing similar amounts in each town, given that children are probably pretty much the same. The fact that there was so much variation between the towns suggested that there are a lot of medical procedures that are not essential, that are really subject to the judgment and preferences of medical professionals. And how much we do is not dictated by health, as it were, but dictated by, you know, habit, what we were used to, how much we get paid and other things that don't seem to be essential.
3: Yeah, I remember that work by Wenberg, but now we're in a pandemic, and it feels like we've kind of moved the goalposts a little bit, so that you know anything related to COVID nineteen is essential care, but a lot of other stuff apparently isn't.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I'm an oncologist, and I hear from my friends about how they can't sometimes get their cancer patient in for procedures necessary to give them chemotherapy. But even in cancer, there are some things which are essential and some things which fall into this, you know, judgment area, a gray area. You know, if you've got a brand new cancer, say Hodgkin's disease or a breast cancer, you know, we know that if you get chemotherapy, we can either save your life or certainly prolong your life substantially by getting the right chemotherapy. But there are other cancers where that's not so true, and whether you get chemotherapy or not may not be essential. And here I'm thinking of something like metastatic lung cancer where the lung cancer is all over your body and unfortunately you are going to die from the lung cancer. We know that giving more chemotherapy there probably won't extend your life and may actually, you know, give you a lot of side effects while you're trying to live that's not essential care. You have to look at each specific case and the specific patients. You can't just say, oh, cancer therapy, that's all essential, but non-cancer therapy, orthopedics, that's inessential. Those broad categories don't work. We have to look at defined cases and make judgments at very specific cases.
3: You know, it seems to me like this is sort of the joker in the deck right now. I mean, it's possible we're neglecting people who really need care, And maybe we'll even see six months or a year from now that the non-COVID-19 patients, like your cancer patients, we might see that they weren't getting procedures in a timely way that could hurt their long-term outcomes. But I'm thinking we might also see there were fewer unnecessary surgeries, you know, surgeries that caused infection, surgeries that led to other procedures and other bad outcomes that weren't necessary in the first place, that didn't help public health overall. And it's going to be really interesting to see what that data looks like.
1: You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, one of the challenges of working within this pandemic is there's a lot of uncertainty in those judgments and we're having to make policies and we're having to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. So we don't know if we got rid of all those elective procedures, are people actually going to be better? But you have to make policies in the middle of this pandemic. Without knowing the answer to the question, is it better to do these procedures or not better to do these procedures in general?
3: Well, here's the story of one New Yorker who wanted a procedure and was not about to let these coronavirus restrictions stop him from getting it.
4: My name is Izzy. I'm 72 years old. I am a retired software engineer, live in Staten Island and Scottsdale, Arizona, we're uh, snowbirds.
3: Snowbirds. That means Izzy and his wife Toby fly southwest for the winter every year.
4: I noticed the problem like maybe seven, eight months ago, because I couldn't control my uh, my bladder. But I thought it was something that happens when you get older. Now realizing that there's probably like a you know a, a solution to it. You know, like I would be asleep or something like that, and I'll have, uh, you know, like an accident in bed or something. Uh, so that's why I had those special uh, underwear. Depends. De- Depends. The name of the company. I couldn't control it. Like, you know, I was afraid of having an accident or something.
3: Izzy's bladder problem was only getting worse, so he made an appointment to see his doctor in Arizona. The
4: doctor, uh, he said that most probably the reason why is because I'm not, you know, like discharging urine properly, and there's a constriction in the prostate. Yeah, it was pressing on the urethra, so I wasn't able to, like, to, you know, have a normal flow.
3: The doctor recommended a surgery called transurethral resection of the prostate.
4: They call it uh, TURP or TURP or something. Or what they do is they go in and they shave the prostate. And they make it like small, kind of a little smaller, and so on and so forth.
3: Izzy and his wife were already planning to return to their home in New York City. So they called their doctor in New York to see if Izzy could have his surgery there.
4: And that was like in March, sometime early March. And that's when, at that time, that's when the coronavirus was starting. So I went to see my doctor there at Sloan, and he confirmed the uh, the prognosis, and he says that the, we, he would go ahead and do the surgery. I went for the pre-op, and the following week I was supposed to go for the surgery. And that Monday of that week, when the surgery was supposed to happen, that's when I got a phone call, and they told me that my surgery was canceled.
3: They said his surgery was elective. Izzy disagreed.
4: If you think about it, it wasn't really an elective surgery, because if I didn't get it done, you know, chances are that urine will back up into my kidneys and probably damage my kidneys. You know, I felt terrible because I felt there was a problem and there's a solution. There's a resolution to it and I'm not able to, to get there. That's when I called my doctor here and he said, yeah, come and we'll do it here. So we jumped on the plane the following day and we came to Arizona.
3: Flying back to Arizona, even at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, was a surreal experience for Izzy and his wife, Toby.
4: Airport was relatively empty. Yeah, the right. It was true. relatively empty. Right. We wiped down everything on the plane and yeah. we went to the bathroom. We wiped everything down, down before we used yeah. it. We had masks on, we had gloves <laughs> on. <laughs> you do the interview. We made sure that nobody was sitting yeah. around us. We sat in the back, so we had all these empty yes. rows around yeah, us. The plane was half empty too. So it was, it was very little empty. traffic at the yeah. airport. The airport was almost empty and the plane was like half empty. So we sat in the back, there was nobody around us. I mean, us, you're so still nervous. Well, yeah, not, but it weren't as, you not know. Not like now. Right. Now I would be shitting right. a brick. Right.
3: Even in Arizona, whether Izzy would be able to get his surgery was far from guaranteed.
4: The night before he was scheduled, we heard on the news that they were canceling right. all elective surgeries or anything that could wait had to wait. Right. But they didn't call us to cancel it. So he went in that morning, and when he saw the doctor, the doctor said he had to fight and convince them to go ahead with the surgery. They wanted to cancel it. So he just got in under the guard. Right. I just made it through.
3: In any other year, they'd be back in New York by now, but they're hunkering down in Arizona for the foreseeable future.
4: I'm fully recovered. The surgery is very easy the only thing is that was uncomfortable they got i uh, got a catheter that, that they inserted in and uh it had to stay like for four or five days or something like mm-hmm. that yeah and after that everything was fine
3: Zeke, I know you have strong opinions about prostate surgery. I want to just mention the most famous prostate surgery in history. There was a guy named Diamond Jim Brady, who was a big kind of celebrity rich guy in New York in the late 19th, early 20th century in the Gilded Age. And he had a problem holding in his urine. So he went to Hopkins. They treated him. It was rocky, but they fixed it. And he gave them a whole bunch of money. And now they have the Brady Pavilion named after Diamond Jim Brady.
1: I won't ask how he got his money.
3: Uh, You know, behind every great fortune, there's a few great
1: crimes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I do have strong opinions about prostate surgery. And I, you know, uh, urologists and I are not necessarily in the same boat about it. This is one of those discretionary procedures because prostate surgery, you might get relief from your urinary tract problems, but you also might become incontinent not infrequently that happens. And you might become impotent because the surgeon could nick the nerve, uh, very easy to do. And I, you know, am of the view that people need to make that choice. This is one of those procedures that we have other alternatives. We have medical treatments, but there is a big incentive to do these surgical procedures by urologists, because they get paid per person that they do the surgical procedure on. And so they have an incentive to encourage patients to do them. And I think they're not always done for the best reasons for patients or patients aren't fully informed necessarily about alternatives to that because the whole system makes a lot of money. So this falls into that gray area you were referring to before, Jonathan, area that requires judgment, and it's not clear it's essential.
3: And the other thing about this gray area is in this case, you know, Izzy and Toby were able to fly where they wanted to to try to get this procedure and, and in effect to, you know, outrace the state guidelines that were unfolding at that point in the pandemic. Isn't there a fairness aspect to this story also? Not everybody can do that.
1: Oh, I totally agree with you that there's a fairness aspect that if you have resources and you have doctors in New York and doctors in Arizona, you have the ability to pick and choose your favorite situation. And in this case, a situation colored by the COVID pandemic, you know, the vast majority of Americans can't decide, well, you know, I can't get it here in New York. I'll go 3,000 miles, 4,000 miles away. And that is unfair.
3: Izzy's story also points up that nobody's really coordinating this centrally. I mean, there's no national standard for what counts as essential care. So, you know, it's really up to each state and its internal politics.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we've learned about uh, the, the American health care system and the way we have public health measures uh, from COVID is how decentralized it is and how contradictory and often intention. We can have decisions made. So, you know, there might be agreement about most colonoscopies, unless they're removing a tumor, are really not essential, elective, and can be postponed for a few months. Similarly, with hip replacements for pain, not hip replacements for a broken bone, but hip replacements for pain. But, you know, then there are, as it were, gray areas like abortion. It's an elective procedure. Not every woman gets it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not essential.
3: Yeah, and abortion, of course, brings up lots of questions of medical ethics. You know, abortion is mentioned in the version of the Hippocratic Oath that we have now, though there is debate among medical historians about whether the apparent prohibition of abortion in the oath was original in the oath. It might have been added later, is what some people say. Also, of course, the fact that something is mentioned in an ethics code suggests that it was done. Uh, was probably done a lot. But apart from that, in our own, you know, recent U.S. history, abortion has become a a partisan issue. Now it's kind of expected that you're you're pro-choice if you're a Democrat or pro-life if you're a Republican. But back in the 60s, that wasn't necessarily true, even into the early 70s, until really Roe v. Wade seems to have made this so much more political.
1: One of the things I would say is abortion is one of those issues. I think you're right that in the 60s and early 70s, you know, people had personal preferences. They might say, look, I would not get an abortion, but I believe as a matter of policy, we should let people decide on their own what they want to do. I think that position has sort of evaporated, and uh, I think that's uh, narrowed the range of choices.
3: What bothered a lot of people, I think, in the 60s leading up to Roe, is you could have a hospital in one part of one state that was pretty liberal in allowing abortion. And then a few miles away, you could have another hospital in the same state that was more restrictive about abortion. But now, these obstacles to abortion don't so much vary from hospital to hospital in the same state as they do from one state to another.
1: You're absolutely right, Jonathan. And during the coronavirus pandemic, lawmakers in six different states have already taken this to an extreme, using the crisis to say that non-essential care has to stop. And since they define abortion as non-essential care, all abortion clinics have to close.
3: So take the state of Louisiana. It's never been a place that's friendly to abortion. Now it's the center of the pandemic. They haven't quite defined abortion care as non-essential care, but that doesn't mean Louisiana is an easy place to get an abortion. In fact, there are just three clinics across the whole state to serve one million people of reproductive age, and that's down from 11 clinics in 2007.
1: To learn more about what COVID-19 has meant for abortions in Louisiana, we spoke to Stephanie Bangle, Executive Director of the New Orleans Abortion Fund.
3: Well, so tell us something about the New Orleans Abortion Fund. I think a lot of people know what an abortion clinic is, but what is an abortion fund and how how do you operate in the state?
2: That's a good question. Yeah, and frankly, I get that one a lot. Um, So an abortion fund at its most brass tax level is exactly what it sounds like. We help people pay for their abortions. Sometimes the immediate response that I get in saying that is like, why? <laughs> um, and, you know, I think if you don't live in a state like Louisiana, it can be a little bit harder to connect the dots around why an abortion fund needs to exist. Mm-hmm. We exist to help people pay for the health care that um, through a confluence of government restrictions and other policies that intersect with health care access that they're not able to afford. So, you know, Louisiana has many, many restrictions on abortion access. We have passed 89 laws since the Roe versus Wade decision was decided in 1973, and that's more than any other state in the country. So just from the jump, folks have a lot of hoops that they have to jump through. But at the most foundational level, in terms of how we pay for our health care, there's something at the federal level that was passed only a couple of years after Roe called the Hyde Amendment that prohibits Medicaid from paying for abortion and not just Medicaid. The Hyde Amendment prohibits federal dollars from paying for abortion care. So that means obviously Medicaid, but that also means if you get your health care through the VA or if you're a federal employee who gets your health care through your job, that also means folks who access their health care through Indian Health Services. And so the Hyde Amendment is sort of a cornerstone of restrictions. But in Louisiana, we take it a step further. And private insurance is also not permitted to cover abortions.
1: Stephanie, can you give us a sense of who the people are that you serve?
2: I guess I should start by saying, you know, across the country, not only in Louisiana, but across the country, there's no one person who gets an abortion. There's no sort of profile of an abortion patient, I think. Folks of all walks of life, folks of all levels of access, of all incomes, of all faith backgrounds get abortions. In terms of the people that we serve as an organization that strives to really advance economic justice and fill some of the gaps in care through our work, we do primarily serve people who are low income or living at or below the poverty line. You know, I think I would be remiss if I didn't lift up the majority of our clients at the New Orleans Abortion Fund are folks who have already had children and know what it means to carry your pregnancy to term and know what it means to, you know, invest in 18 plus years of rearing a child and really caring and expanding your family in that way.
3: And you mentioned that the process has changed a bit now under COVID-19 conditions. Can you say something about that? If somebody needs an abortion in Louisiana now, how has this affected their
2: ability to get one? Yeah, that's a really heavy question. Um, And I think that the answer to it is sort of an ever moving target. We are lucky in Louisiana in comparison to many of our sort of peer states in that the service delivery model has not significantly changed since, um, let's say, since mid-March. You know, in comparison to our neighbor Texas, for example, where many, many patients have been called three or four times by the same clinic to cancel and reschedule and then cancel again and then reschedule appointments because of the shenanigans that their attorney general and governor have been doing around trying to restrict abortion access during this time.
1: I'm gonna jump in here. Most of these state orders to temporarily or indefinitely shut down abortion services have been struck down as unconstitutional, except in Texas. In Texas, the ban was upheld by a federal appeals court, and abortion became completely unavailable in the state for the first time since Roe v.ersus Wade. The governor's order expired on April 22nd, but the future is still uncertain. You
2: know, Louisiana's lucky that we haven't had quite as many reversals as some of our peer states. But there was a moment earlier in March where briefly all three of the clinics had had to pause services in response to some of the guidelines that were shared by the Louisiana Department of Health. There was a moment where our attorney general authorized what I consider and what I think several other, uh, several lawyers, I can't say other, I am not a lawyer, uh, what I would consider unconstitutional investigations into all three of our clinics in the state. They sent Medicaid fraud investigators into our state to rifle through patient files. Things like that are interrupting services.
3: Are there other ways in which providers have been interrupted in the ability to do their jobs besides this kind of harassment?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think harassment is the perfect word because we're seeing harassment at the the, like, governance level, we're seeing harassment from elected officials and bureaucrats. We're also seeing harassment from the anti-abortion protesters who always harass patients, but in this COVID-19 pandemic, they are using pretty abysmal and disgusting new tactics to harass patients. So two that really come to mind, one, a couple of weeks ago, I personally volunteered for an escort shift outside of the clinic here in New Orleans to um, support the team. And one of the weekly protesters who's always out there on Fridays started coughing without covering her mouth in the direction of the escort. So when I looked at her, she said, oh, it's just allergies. I mean, that is by a lot, it's it's just disgusting. And I will say, you know, the antis are, they're savvy too. They know that if they have nine people on the line as opposed to 10, that if we call the police department, no one's going to break them up. They know that as long as they have fewer than 10 people, they can't be enforced for loitering under COVID-19 regulations. (laughs) There are a lot of savvy tactics that antis use, and they're part of national networks. You know, these church groups that come and sit outside the clinic don't just do that because one day someone came in and said, hey, why don't we go try this? All of these anti-abortion protesters are part of national networks that receive national technical assistance and guidance and funding. To go do that, to go harass patients and to harass clinic providers too. You know, I think it's important to mention that, like, all all three—I feel silly to say all three—but all three clinics in Louisiana have histories of um, like anti-abortion targeted harassment and violence. Every provider I know has been followed has been targeted. You know, there are providers in our state who have multiple protection orders against anti-harassers. Like, it's important not to lose sight of the very contemporary history of anti-abortion harassment and violence in our country.
3: How would you give the most concise answer to somebody who looked at you and said, I, you say it's uh, this is an essential or emergency intervention. I don't get it. Why is it essential? or uh, what, If you had to give the elevator <laughs> explanation, what would it be?
2: I am of the stance that abortions are essential when they are essential to the person who is seeking them because all persons deserve the right to bodily autonomy and abortion is immensely time sensitive. You know, I am someone who's had two abortions, and while they were in radically different times of my life and in radically, you know, required for radically different reasons, they were both essential healthcare for me. To ask someone who is pregnant and does not want to be pregnant to carry forward a pregnancy for an indeterminate amount of time because their bodily autonomy is deemed by the state not to be essential, that is cruel beyond measure.
3: So besides strictly medical necessity, can you name another reason or two that you would consider abortion to be essential?
2: Sure. Um, Though I also want to lift up the strict medical necessity. You know, there are scores of reasons why someone might need to terminate a pregnancy for medical reasons, Um, whether that is because there's someone with gestational diabetes, which would put them at a higher risk of contracting covid-19 and having severe medical outcomes whether they have, you know, dozens of healthcare issues that might intersect with a pregnancy, abortion is far safer than carrying a pregnancy to term and I certainly wouldn't I wouldn't blame someone who wasn't exactly enthusiastic about a pregnancy to begin with to not want to carry forward a pregnancy in this moment when everyone is trying their hardest to avoid going to a hospital, right? Louisiana is the epicenter of a maternal mortality and morbidity crisis right now, one that is particularly racially skewed. We are a state where black women have a four times higher likelihood of dying or experiencing severe morbidities in pregnancy than do their white counterparts. You know, there are a lot of reasons that someone might not want to carry forward a pregnancy. And I would say, especially right now, you know, Louisiana is a state that deeply, deeply depends on both the hospitality and the food service industries. And those are two industries that are completely decimated in this moment. If you've just lost your job or if you've just lost your two jobs, where you know, we, only, we have a minimum wage of seven twenty five an hour, so you are probably not making enough to really sustain your family to begin with, I don't blame someone for not feeling like they can bring a child into the world right now.
3: So I take your point that medical necessity has a lot of aspects, a lot of factors. What about the timing of an abortion? How does time fit in?
2: So Louisiana is a state that has a 20-week gestational limit on abortion, which means the latest you can receive abortion care in our state is at 19 weeks and six days. We are also a state with some of the highest costs for abortion procedures in the country. And every week that you wait drives up the cost. So abortion is absolutely time-sensitive, <laughs> If you find out today that you're eight weeks pregnant and you're told that you have to wait a month or that you have to wait six weeks, the cost of that health care will rise by hundreds, if not a thousand dollars.
3: What about the long-term consequences of not being able to get a wanted abortion?
2: There's a really incredible study called the Turnaway Study that was completed, I want to say about a year ago. And it looks at this exact question. It looks at what are the long-term effects of not being able to access the abortion care that you're looking for? And what it found, I think unsurprisingly, is that people who are not able to access the abortion that they want, that they are choosing, who are forced to carry forward a pregnancy to term that they do not want, they experience higher rates of depression, they experience far worse mental health outcomes, they experience greater poverty, Because, you know, kids are expensive and Louisiana does not exactly have like a robust social services infrastructure to support you.
1: So let me play devil advocate for a second. Could there be legitimate reasons for states to restrict abortion during the coronavirus pandemic? I mean, is it just opportunism of politicians or could there be any good legitimate reason that a reasonable person might invoke? that justifies putting a pause on access to abortion while we're having this enormous public health crisis and overwhelmed hospitals.
2: From my standpoint, it is just political chicanery. I think that it is very telling to look at which states have chosen to use this medical and economic and human crisis to create another medical economic human crisis in trying to restrict abortions. If you look at those states, To a letter, they are all states that have some of the highest numbers of existing anti-abortion laws on the books. They are states that have passed or tried to pass things like the six-week ban, which Louisiana did pass last year, but it's currently enjoined in litigation and not in effect. You know, it would be one thing if we saw states that are otherwise more liberal or permissive on abortion trying to limit its access in this moment, but we're not seeing that. To a state, the states that have restricted abortion access during COVID-19 have been states that have been striving to restrict abortion access through every other possible measure for the last couple of decades.
1: If you look at the calls that you're getting today versus the calls that you were getting, say, in December 2019, are they different? Is there a difference in tone, difference in the kind of person, the kind of circumstances that people are confronting?
2: I think... It's sort of a yes-end answer to that question. And the reason why is because as as I've been alluding to sort of throughout our conversation, Louisiana is a state that in many ways has been operating as an abortion desert. You know, we have three clinics. There's one in New Orleans, one in Baton Rouge, and one in Shreveport. But if you live in, let's say, Lake Charles, which is a sizable city, by Louisiana standards anyway, in um, Southwest Louisiana, the closest place for you to go is Houston. The closest place for folks in a lot of our state to go is in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi. And so already, you know, even in December 2019, already folks in Louisiana were often traveling hundreds of miles to get the abortion care that they wanted. And because of our 24 hour waiting period on the books in Louisiana, people have to travel at least twice to get that health care you have to have that um, mandatory ultrasound appointment at least 24 hours before actually receiving your abortion health care, whether it's a procedural abortion or a medication abortion. And so if you've already had to travel a couple hundred miles just to get to the clinic, does that mean you're going to reserve a hotel room overnight? Does that mean you're going to have to arrange for child care? You know, one scenario I think is important to lift up is if you need to arrange for childcare, maybe normally you would ask your mom to watch the kids if you had to leave town overnight. But because of stigma or because of the faith in which you were raised, you don't feel like you can tell your mom about the choice that you're making today. And so that's already been the case for many, many callers that we serve. You know, folks in our community are making seven twenty-five an hour and still have to arrange for a hotel and still have to arrange for a couple hundred miles of gas and childcare and all of those things. The difference between December and now, or, you know, the callers that we're speaking to in this pandemic moment, they have to do all of those things, but they also have to think about social distancing. And they also have to think about, you know, the liabilities of exposure. And they might've lost their jobs. Many of them did. The economic impacts of COVID-19 in Louisiana alongside the very profound health impacts of COVID-19 in Louisiana are making all of these decisions even more difficult and even more complicated. But I think, you know, more than anything, the calls that we receive, the lie that people are just confused. They've been reading in the news that Texas is canceling appointments. They've been reading in the news that Jeff Landry was running these investigations, our attorney general. They read in the news last year that they passed a six-week ban, and they're not sure if they'll even be able to get an abortion in Louisiana because they're not sure if that ban is in effect. When we hear from folks, I think folks are determined to get the health care that they're looking for, and they're not quite sure of what the landscape looks like. Between March 21st, which is when the Louisiana Department of Health memo went down, and the first couple of weeks of April, We helped people schedule and reschedule and sometimes reschedule again (laughs) appointments to receive abortion care in Louisiana, of course, in Texas, of course, though those had to be rescheduled, but in states as far away as Arkansas, New Mexico, Alabama, Georgia, and Illinois. People are going to get abortions when they need abortions. and we're gonna help them get there.
3: So Zeke, Stephanie's argument for abortion as essential healthcare centers on bodily autonomy. Respect for autonomy is a big principle in bioethics. We talk about it a lot. What do you think of that? Well,
1: I think autonomy is a big principle in bioethics. We are an individualist country founded on liberty. We want people to have the ability to shape their own life and to make life plans and to be able to pursue them. And we think it's important to give people Those opportunities. The real question is if we agree to that, and we agree abortion is essential to being able to shape your life plan, then it does seem to be essential both in people having a right to it. It also seems essential in the sense that it's the clock is ticking, as it were. You have to have it within twenty weeks or twenty-four weeks, depending upon the state. And so, if you can't access it in time because a state has put a pause on it you might time out of getting it. It's kind of like an urgent liver transplant in some ways. You might not die from it, but your life will be radically changed if you can't get a procedure you think is important to realizing how you want your life to go.
3: It's interesting that Izzy's case and Stephanie's argument are a little bit in tension when we talk about essential and non-essential medical care. I mean, he felt that his Prostate procedure was really essential to him. That he had a ticking clock. Uh, He was worried about damage to his kidneys if he didn't take that taken care of. And yet, you know, we we let him fly between jurisdictions to do that. Stephanie's argument about essential health care also has to do with a ticking clock. You know, isn't there a conflict there where we're respecting unquestionably the bodily autonomy of the people that she's worried about? What about Izzy's autonomy? Shouldn't he have the right to have gone from jurisdiction to jurisdiction to get his prostate procedure?
1: Well, I actually think if we can guarantee everyone fair and equitable access to healthcare, and then some people like Izzy, who have additional resources, want to get more care and wanna get a prostate operation, as long as it doesn't undermine other people's ability to get healthcare, I think Izzy should be able to spend his money however he wants. He too ought to have autonomy, as long as it doesn't compromise someone else's ability to get health care. So I actually don't think their intention, Jonathan. I think it depends upon how we structure the healthcare system. Both people should have autonomy as long as they're not adversely affecting other people's lives. And I think this gets us right back into the whole abortion issue of, well, is a 20-week fetus or a 15-week fetus Uh, a person or not. And if you don't think they're a person and they don't have protections, which is what the Supreme Court has said, uh, then an abortion isn't affecting that person's life. And uh, the mother gets to decide how uh, how this pregnancy affects her life.
3: Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content. Executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel.
1: Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. And special thanks to Dr. Kim Altoff, Eric Messry, and Mary Lingwall.
3: If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. Thanks for listening
1: and stay safe.